0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit JDPower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or SleepNumber.com. Hi, I'm Will Summer. Welcome to The Daily Beast's Fever Dreams. I'm a politics reporter at The Daily Beast, and I'm currently working on a book about QAnon called Trust the Plan for HarperCollins coming out later this year. And I'm Kelly Weil. I am also a reporter at The Daily Beast, and I'm the author of the book, Off the Edge. Flat earthers, conspiracy culture, and why people will believe anything. On this podcast, we're going to take you on plunges into the sometimes hilarious, sometimes scary fanatics, infecting the way that millions of Americans view the world and how they vote. Even in the aftermath of the Trump administration, the energy of these conspiracy theorists, grifters, and influencers is still pushing our mainstream political landscape closer and closer to a breaking point. Welcome back to Fever Dreams. Once again, I'm Will Summer. This week, we're joined again by guest host Anthony Fisher. He's a senior opinion editor at The Daily Beast, here to share some of his opinions. Anthony, welcome back. Thanks so much, Will. Delighted to be back. So, Anthony, first of all, top of mind for me is this kind of, I guess, mental game Donald Trump is running in the Missouri Senate race. <laughs> now, by the time this episode is out, that primary will be decided, the Republican primary there. But I think Donald Trump's maneuver here will echo throughout the ages. Were you able to catch this little bit of a sort of verbal jujitsu? I was, and I have thoughts. Okay, so to sort of set the stage for folks, the Missouri Senate primary right now, is a pretty crowded field on the Republican side. Among the people running are the Missouri Attorney General Eric Schmidt and Eric Greiton. So note there's two Erics there. Too many Eric, some would say. Now, the issue is, so Eric Greitens is kind of the more infamous candidate here. He was once the governor. He resigned while under criminal investigation for this kind of twisted sexual blackmail scheme involving a, a hairdresser that he was allegedly having an affair with. She alleges that he sort of tied her up and took these pictures of her to blackmail her. Ultimately, I believe the charges were overturned. Greitens resigned from office. But it kind of seemed like a guy whose career was as dead as it can be. But he was... Disgraced in an age where Republicans really don't believe anyone in law enforcement. And so he was able to kind of claw his way back with a lot of help from Jim Hoft of the Gateway Pundit, which is based in Missouri. And so now he's kind of a player, uh, not enough of a player, though, for a lot of Republicans to be convinced that he should be the nominee. I think a lot of establishment Republicans fear that he's going to blow the race in what should be a red state if he wins the nomination. So him and Eric Schmidt and all these other folks have been scrabbling for the Trump endorsement, which could be kind of the one thing. Thing that makes them stand out. Anthony, what's your take on this race?
1: I don't have the strongest take on the race. It's like you said, there's enough X factors in there that the ball could bounce any number of ways. But I do have thoughts on Trump's entree into it, which I think you haven't quite <laughs> laid out
0: yet. Yeah, I haven't laid out yet. Okay, so Trump world is sort of divided on this. I think there's people who fear that Greitens is going to blow it. Meanwhile, Kimberly Guilfoyle, Trump's future daughter-in-law, is on Team Greitens. So Trump said on Monday on Truth Social, my endorsement will be coming today. And you say this sort of would be kind of the last final the last minute endorsement everyone was anticipating it and then he comes out and says i'm endorsing eric now you may remember there are two erics in this race and so he says i trust the great people of missouri on this one to make up their own minds much as they did when they gave me landslide victories in 2016 and 2020 and i am therefore proud to announce that eric has my complete and total endorsement now apparently he called both eric schmidt and eric wrighton separately and said i'm endorsing you and then and not said by the way I'm also endorsing other Eric. And so these guys were both convinced, okay, well, I'm getting the endorsement. And then it comes out and it's this weird... Trump kind of wants a place a bet; he kind of doesn't. Yeah, I mean, it's classic Trump,
1: and like an onion, there are many layers to this. My first thought was that it was just a straight-up troll, and just a way to cause chaos, and kind of a relatively novel way for Trump to insert himself into the political news cycle. So often, Trump and his supporters will accuse their detractors of not having a sense of humor. When he would say or do something horrible and cruel, he would be just like, oh, it's a joke, which is a very abuser tactic. But in this case, the joke kind of funny that like he's inserting himself into he's trolling republicans really he's creating chaos he's we don't know who he's exactly endorsing in this three-way race but He's got a, instead of having a 50% chance of success, this endorsing Eric gives him a 66% chance of success. Who knows how it's going to shake out, but however it shakes out, somebody is probably going to be able to claim that the Trump endorsement pushed them over the edge and Trump gets to wave that flag.
0: Well, it is sort of like part of the whole unreality of this thing where then both of these campaigns do come out and say, well, Trump endorsed us and they don't say, but you also endorsed the other Eric. I mean, Politico had a write-up on this on sort of the backroom dealings to get to the two Eric's dilemma. It was essentially like someone said, that these people were, everyone's bickering at one of the golf courses over who Trump should endorse. And then someone said, Trump's getting frustrated. And then someone says, maybe you could just endorse Eric and then Trump said, "Well, do they spell their names the same?" because that's going to screw it up. The other thing, I think the person who is like if Trump's playing 4D chess here, the guy who's playing 5D chess is Congressman Billy Long who is in Missouri and is sort of headed down in flames in this race. I mean, he's nowhere near the Eric's. I mean, he's like pulling around 6th place. People may remember Billy Long long ago. I believe 2018, Laura Loomer interrupted a congressional hearing and Billy Long, a former auctioneer, starts going, "We got a one, we got a two, You know, in sort of Shouted her down. It was brilliant. And Laura Luver now has claimed this is the moment Billy Long's career fell apart. And he's saying all these kind of like, ooh, I savor the lamentations of my enemies. However, Billy Long, I mean, he can't stop winning. So he says, now his name is not Eric, right? But he says, well, Trump said to pick between the two Erics. And on the ballot, Eric Schmidt's number two. Eric Greitens is number four. Who's between them on the ballot? Me, Billy Long. So you have to admire the optimism there. I think the larger takeaway here is it's a very, I feel like we're in kind of an unsettled time in terms of Trump's influence in the party. I think he's kind of trying to rack up with Ron DeSantis, be hot on his heels, but there's potentially a criminal investigation into him, January 6th committee did not go as well as he might have hoped. And so I think he's trying to kind of rack up influence wins without really putting too much out on the line. And so if this kind of Joker-like move is the best he has, I think he's trying to claim somebody won. And if one of the Erics wins, I think the other Eric will be memory hold and he'll just move on from there.
1: Yeah, I mean, many websites that cover politics have been keeping a tally of Trump's endorsement wins and loses. So this one's going to really screw things up. This one's going to need an asterisk. What I also think needs to be considered is how much money Democrats are putting into MAGA candidates. I don't know if that's been discussed in previous episodes of this show, but it's a controversial thing where the strategy from these Democratic donors is to pump up the unelectable candidate to knock off the more electable moderate Republican candidate and thereby keep the advantage in the House and the Senate. But you have a case right now with Congressman Peter Mayer in. Michigan, who is a first-term congressman, who not even a week into his term in Congress voted to impeach the Republican president, and now he's facing a very, very strong challenge from a Democratic-backed MAGA candidate. I wonder how that, like, how Trump could take credit for those kind of wins.
0: It's all an interesting thing. I mean, I think the question of this Democrat meddling in these races, it often, I think, sort of, I mean, I think it's a dumb strategy. I I think it's stupid. I think Republicans these days often choose the sort of the furthest right candidate they can. And so I, I don't think people should, Democrats are wise to be boosting them. On the other hand, all of this kind of agita on the left over it and in the media sort of erases the fact that Republicans are choosing these candidates. And often not by small margins. I mean, there was a lot of talk about Democrats boosting Mastriano in Pennsylvania. I mean, that guy won by like 40 points. So, I mean, I think a couple Democrat ad buys aren't doing much there. So, yeah, I think we'll have to leave it there in terms of the primaries so far, but good luck to the Erics. May the best Eric triumph. You know what it is? It's kind of like if you want to call it Highlander, if you want to call it Jet Lee's The One, only one Eric will emerge victorious. If we read
1: between the lines, there's always hope for Billy Law.
0: Yes, exactly. Exactly. The third Eric. <laughs> okay. All right, Anthony, I just spent 20 bucks watching a real crappy documentary. So now it's time to talk about it. It's Alex's War, the Alex Jones documentary we mentioned last week. Please tell me you have not subjected yourself to this. No, I would have shared your login had I known. Oh, shoot. Okay. I couldn't bear to make you watch this movie. So there's a lot of documentaries and quasi-documentaries out there on the right. I will say most of them, it feels like kind of a stretch to even call them documentaries. Documentaries has become sort of at the same time that like a lot of apolitical YouTube stars have gotten really into making quote-unquote documentaries about themselves. The right has also gotten really into these documentaries where they kind of just film a couple of their Twitter buddies talking about how great they are and then say, it's a documentary. My mind, I jumped to the movie, the quote documentary about snake venom in the water, turning us all into demonic serpents.
1: 2,000 Mules also follows that format. The Dinesh D'Souza Big Lie documentary, like much of it is built around Dennis Prager and Eric Metaxas and Larry Elder sitting around talking about how how brilliant Dinesh D'Souza is for uncovering the indisputable truth about voter fraud in the 2000 election.
0: That's a great point. I was just thinking about the new thing with 2,000 Mules is one of the stars of 2,000 Mules is organizing a sort of confab for the conservative elites where they're going to plot their next move. And there's like a lot of fighting over who gets invited to it, but it's called The Pit. And it's like, I guess I'll miss the pit. It doesn't sound like a great time. So getting back to documentaries. So this is a movie called Alex's War. Now, this is a movie that is sort of a... The reason I wanted to talk about it is because I think it... First of all, it is a bit more of an actual documentary than a lot of these others. But I think it represents kind of an interesting political document. Because it is sort of a union between the nihilistic, quasi-fascist, downtown New York, Manhattan, media elite scene. Folks may remember our interview with James Pogue, who chronicled these people. all these various ties to Peter Thiel, to the Red Scare podcast to a guy named Mencius Moldbug and then your ties to sort of a more more traditional conspiracy theorist right represented by Alex Jones by the Stop the Steal movement so this movie was put together a woman named Alex Lee Moyer and she has claimed this is not necessarily a pro Alex Jones movie it's just Triggered Lib and Will Summer and, and folks like that are just so upset that anyone lets Alex Jones have his piece and she's the only one brave enough to find out exactly what his deal is I guess I would take issue with that to begin with because obviously we talk all the time about Alex Jones and people know what his deal is and and he's bad. (laughs) But nevertheless, I thought with the timing as we record this, Alex Jones is set to appear to testify at the first of the Sandy Hook trials today. And so I watched this movie and I gotta say, let me put on my Gene Shalit mustache here. This movie stinks. It's two hours. It's bad. It's not good. The access to Alex Jones is essentially like a lot of what to my mind were sort of staged for the benefit of the documentary. Let's see Alex Jones shoot off a big sniper rifle and sort of talk about what an innocent guy he is. But yeah, I mean, Anthony, would you mind if I sort of just set up what the deal is with this movie
1: sure as long as you don't mind me following up with some questions
0: yeah please do so basically this movie is sort of framed around the stop the Steal movement and we sort of cut in and out from various sort of protests in dc that were leading up to january 6th that it sort of climaxes with january 6th but in the meantime alex lee moore the director here gets a ton of time with alex jones but not in like really enlightening ways like we don't see alex jones making his breakfast or really interacting with his kids or even really running his business from behind the scenes we just get a lot of like alex jones talking about what a put-upon guy he is and how he just loves finding out the truth. And and a lot of this movie is sort of set up around the idea that this is a guy who really knew what was up with the world, and people laughed at him, and they said he was a kook, but, oh, he didn't like George W. Bush and all this stuff. But there's a lot of like, a lot of his claims at the time even then were, have, they have not borne out to be true. I mean, this idea that there was a sort of globalist cabal, not really proven to be true, that he sort of portrayed is this like genius prophet about 9-11 truth. Again, not true that the 9-11 attacks were an inside job. I mean, it's also like a weirdly flabby documentary. I mean, it is long. It's like two hours. I realized 80 minutes in and we were we were flashing back to 2004. And I was like, oh God, we got a long way to go. There's like just tons of footage of these protests leading up to January 6th. There was one a couple of weeks after the election in 2020. Then another... I think they have one in December. They might've skipped that. It might just be the November one. No, they do have one in December. I mean, not that it matters, but, I mean, it's like, all right, well, here's Alex Jones walking around and people say, we love you, Alex Jones. And he says, oh, thank you. I mean, there's a lot of like really ominous shots of helicopters flying over, I guess with the implication that like these are like the noted black helicopters. It's a stinker, folks. It's just not good. I mean, to me, I mean, there's a lot of interviews with like former Alex Jones cameramen who are like, Alex Jones is a great guy. But to me, I mean, look, we don't talk to his ex-wife, who's famously very critical of him. I don't think there was talk with his dad. They might have rushed over it briefly. I mean, to me, there's tons of Details out there, thanks to these Sandy Hook lawsuits about how his business runs, all this money he's made. And really, there's n- there's never any like, wait, how does Alex Jones afford all this? <laughs> I mean, maybe he's into this, quote, truth telling because it's so profitable. I got to ask. Is there any pretense that
1: this is anything other than a hagiography of Alex Jones? Do the filmmakers even put up a
0: pretense of what makes the real Alex tick? Yeah, I mean, at the start, there's like a content warning where it says effectively, like, warning, this is meant to expose you to the world as it really is. We're not afraid to talk to controversial figures. So, I mean, this is, I think, supposed to be kind of an investigation, supposedly, into what makes Alex Jones tick. But in reality, I mean, there's just huge amounts that are unexplored, I I thought. And whenever Alex Jones is talking about what a good guy he is, there's a lot of kind of stirring music. And then there's his critics are portrayed with this kind of like, dun, 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 dun. And they do talk about Sandy Hook, but very briefly and is sort of, I mean, look, I mean, the Sandy Hook trial and everything gives you kind of a built-in arc if you wanted to make a documentary. But we don't get into that, really. Then Alex Jones says, like, look. I apologize. What more do they want? I apologize several years later. And it's like, well, it's called a lawsuit and damages We have a legal system. You don't just get to apologize. It doesn't get into all of his various legal maneuvers, his sort of unprecedented level of legal kind of whining and scheming to avoid going to trial on this. The other thing for me was it just never mentioned Pizzagate at all, as best I could tell. I mean, there might have been a brief one. I mean, if the subject of your documentary was read by a guy who then acts on those conspiracy theories to go shoot up a pizzeria full of children. I think I would include that in the documentary. So I guess the
1: audience for this wouldn't be the people who are already hardcore Alex Jones fans. Because remember, Alex Jones is banned from most mainstream social media platforms. So you have to kind of seek him out at this point. You can find him, but you do have to seek him out. So would this documentary be for people who I guess are maybe Fox News viewers, people who like aren't really in the, the conspiracy theory internet rabbit hole, but don't trust the liberal mainstream media? And they've heard about this Alex Jones guy and they don't like the Sandy Hook thing, but Tucker Carlson seems to like him and Glenn Greenwald seems to like him. So is there something there? Would you say that this is the tone they're going for, like the audience they're trying to capture here?
0: That's a great question. I mean, I I think it definitely comes across as sort of an attempt at an Alex Jones image rehab project. And I think it also, like I said, I I think it's sort of meant to bridge the gap between sort of nihilist internet young folks, internet addled young people who are like, maybe I don't buy into 9-11 truth or what have you, but isn't the guy who says the frogs are gay epic? And sort of how can we square the circle here? And so it gives you sort of, I I think, an ironic distance to set it up so it's like these triggered liberals are upset about Alex Jones, but he's just kind of a funny entertainer. The last thing I would say is to sort of give you an idea of what a drag this movie is and how sort of poorly packaged it is. If you would like to see footage of Alex Jones peeing on the pre-explosion Georgia Guidestones, this movie has you covered because there's a whole segment about Alex Jones visits the Georgia Guidestones and pees on him. To what end? None, basically. (laughs) I mean, it's just like this guy doesn't like the Guidestones, which we have not mentioned in the movie up till now and which will never
1: reappear I had never actually even heard of the Georgia Guidestones until they got blown up can you talk a little bit about like
0: why this is such an obsession with the anti-globalist right sure yeah I mean so these are the the Guidestones we mentioned here in the past basically these were sort of mysterious stones that were put up these giant tablets in Georgia that appear to have been built to sort of guide humanity through a post-nuclear future but they also had these remarks about sort of limiting the human population and various eugenicist ideas so Alex Jones Jones I mean in his case he latches onto this idea that Ted Turner of CNN fame built these guidestones in the 80s this is another thing I, w- I would say about this documentary is there's never a point I mean Alex Jones is a guy who this may seem obvious to folks but is just an insane liar and he lies constantly both about current events but also about his own background and so when this documentary is asking you to take Alex Jones at his word that either Ted Turner built these things and there's never a thing that says like that's not true or his idea that Fox News was just so desperate to hire him again not true I mean I think in terms of the the amount of lies that can be packed into a single Alex Jones episode or or into sort of any description he gives of his biography. I mean, I think the folks at the Knowledge Fight podcast, who we've had on in the past, really nail it. I mean, you could spend we spent an entire podcast, just about like a 15-minute segment on his show. And so I think for me, that was the real issue with this documentary was like just that he seemed to be constantly lying. There was really no counterweight presented. So in conclusion, Alex's war more like Will's War to finish this crappy documentary so we could talk about it on the podcast. (laughs) Get our purple heart. Thank you. Thank you very much. Anthony, the Libertarians are at it again. What are they up to?
1: Well, again, this brings me no joy to say this. And the far right has taken over the Libertarian Party. Now, it should be very clear that the Libertarian Party and the Libertarian movement don't often walk in step with one another. And what constitutes the Libertarian movement can be anything from like, quote unquote, mainstream Libertarian journalists at Reason, to like criminal justice think tank types at the Cato Institute and the Institute for Justice. But then there's also like dogmatic libertarians who have always kind of flirted with the far right and the identitarian right, which is completely ironic considering individualism is supposed to be the hallmark of libertarianism. But the Libertarian Party has always been a, a kind of quirky thing that even at its most mainstream, when you had two former governors representing their presidential ticket, Gary Johnson and Bill Weld in 2016, even then the Libertarian Party was considered wacky among mainstream libertarians, in part because of hardcore positions like taxation is theft. But we can now look back at the 2016 and even 2020 vintage of the Libertarian Party as a golden age of sanity and decency compared to what is coming now. So for the uninitiated, there's been a thing in the libertarian movement called the Mises Caucus. It's difficult to boil down into one thing, but what they represent these days is just own the libs, trolling, and overt flirtations with homophobia, racism, xenophobia, some disgusting stuff, which, again, particularly ironic considering the Libertarian Party has actually been ahead of the curve on a lot of social issues like gay marriage, drug legalization, abolishing the death penalty, liberalizing immigration laws. And so now basically the party, which is notable in electoral politics for being the only third party that usually has access to almost all 50 presidential ballots, Sometimes it's a little less, but they've always done better than every other third party, including the Green Party, at at obtaining ballot access. They've done that through like the boring work of like getting the signatures and things like that. What the Libertarian Party is now appears to be on a, it appears to be on a murder-suicide mission with itself because the Mises Caucus has taken over the party. The first thing they did was repudiate past Libertarian Party statements about inclusivity and denouncing racism. All this stuff is just too squishy and lefty and collectivist for the new Mises vintage of the Libertarian Party. And Jeet here has a, who is not a Libertarian, but is is a libertarian watcher a lot, has a piece in The Nation titled The Libertarian Party Goes Alt-Right, which, tough but fair. (laughs) And I encourage you to read it. He lays out a lot of it. But his main diagnosis is that the Libertarian Party, as currently constituted, is not trying to recruit possibly electable candidates like a Gary Johnson or a Bill Weld. It's not trying to reach that 15% threshold in national polling that would get one of their candidates on the presidential debate stage. What they are trying to do is... Basically, annihilate themselves and take out the right of center third party that could possibly compete with a Trump a Trump-led or Trump-inspired GOP. The thesis is that they're not doing the work to stay on the ballots. They're not doing basic fundraising. They're not filing the papers that they're supposed to have. This is from other sources be- besides Jeet. G- it is sad. Like the, the Libertarian Party, however goofy it might have been, I think actually was all things considered a force for good. In a lot of ways, it pulled the right <laughs> a little further to the left on social issues and certainly in some cases even shamed mainstream Democrats. Hillary Clinton comes to mind for being way behind the curve on publicly supporting gay marriage. So Again, I guess to wrap it up, it's it's kind of flown under the radar because, again, it's the Libertarian Party. It's a niche political thing at this point, but it could very well matter in the future if the Libertarian Party like basically doesn't exist as it once did as the third party that's usually an option on every presidential ballot. And if, if they truly are just annihilating themselves to help the Trumpy right, it's not a good thing.
0: Now, is this a deliberate strategy to sabotage the Libertarians from within, or is this an idea that the Libertarians are just so divided right now and they're, they're picking such politically unappetizing positions that in practice... They will fall apart. I
1: mean, I don't think anyone's going to admit that they're deliberately self sabotaging this political movement and this political party. I think they, what they would probably say is the Libertarian Party, if you can believe the words I'm about to say, the Libertarian Party got too woke <laughs> for the Mises Caucus. Like a lot of it is messaging. They haven't deleted the old Libertarian Party tweets. So if you go to the, I think it's at LP National, the National Libertarian Party's official Twitter, and just scan some tweets from 2020, 2021, and scan a handful of tweets from the last couple of months. It's a split personality. They're not speaking the same language. And they're even quote tweeting past Libertarian Party tweets, mocking them. I've never seen anything like this. You're not just like taking the party in a different direction. You're repudiating and savaging everything it stood for two seconds ago.
0: So if you can expand on this a little more, I mean, what is sort of the ideological argument from the Mises, people in favor of, say, sort of a backlash towards gay rights, which I I would think of as sort of a foundational, like, American Libertarian Party position?
1: I don't want to say the wrong thing, but I don't think that they've taken official stands against LGBTQ rights. They've just kind of propped up voices that are in that world. Again, I don't want to say the wrong thing, but it's my understanding that they removed some kind of anti-bigotry plank from the platform, just just removed it. Didn't put a pro-bigotry plank in there, but notably removed the anti-bigotry plank. And at the time, I would say, these in my bookmarks for a couple months because this convention was in late May. But I saved this one tweet by a Libertarian Party activist who tweeted, at the LP National Convention, people used the words and freak when referring to LGBTQ friends of mine. Now they are removing the we condemned bigotry language from the platform. No one needs to wonder why. Some of the sheeple will say because this language has been weaponized against our caucus. But those of us who have been in the thick of it know that their little uninformed pawns are just providing cover for the reality of the situation. That's a first person account. So again, it's an argument you've heard from the right a lot that like the reason we have to be hypocrites and play so dirty is because that's what the left does, which is childish and insane and suicidal. But this is a first person account from a libertarian act somebody who was there, who is making note of the open use of horrific anti-LGBTQ epithets in plain sight at the Libertarian Convention. This is the kind of thing that just a couple of years ago, these people would have been shown the
0: door. Now they're in leadership. So where do we think the libertarians go from here? I mean, is this going to be, whatever happened to the kind of libertarians who when Gary Johnson said he supported driver's licenses, they all booed him and kind of tried to cast him out of the party. I mean, where are those guys? I mean, are they going to retake the party? I don't know. People who were in recent leadership,
1: like the former LP chair, Nicholas Sarwark, he's written often about his, and even for the Daily Beast, he wrote a piece a couple of months ago pointing out the hypocrisy of libertarian-leaning Republicans like Rand Paul, who came out strongly against private businesses making their own vaccine mandate policies. I think people like him, principled libertarians, I mean, they're probably just gonna have to find their voice and, and try to leave their influence through their writing and other forms of activism because the party itself, the inmates took over the asylum. And as you can imagine, the Libertarian Party convention is way smaller than a Democratic or Republican convention and therefore can be taken over by a large group of very dedicated, loud activists. So I don't know where the good guys are going to go from here.
0: All right. We'll be keeping an eye on those libertarians. Let's see if those, I believe their symbol is the porcupine. Let's see if those porcupines can get it together. So, Will, who is our guest today? All right. This week on Fever Dreams, we have Matthew Remsky. He's a co-host of the Conspirituality podcast. That's a combination of conspiracy theories and spirituality. He's a guy who has been up close with these sort of new age cults. And conspiracy theories at the intersection talks about the intersection of, let's say, yoga QAnon and aliens and weird medical stuff. And so I think he seems like a pretty chilled out guy himself. So I, I think he offers some insight into how people get into conspiracy theory movements through New Age belief systems and sort of a quest for a deeper understanding of spirituality and how that leads you into talking to gray aliens and stuff like that. So I think it should be good Fevered Dreams, like all Daily Beast journalism, exists because of the generous support of our subscribers, the people who pay for access to Daily Beast reporting and who are, quite
1: frankly, our favorite people on the face of the planet.
0: Want to get in on all the action? Join now and get unlimited access to Beast reporting, exclusive ad-free newsletters, and our undying appreciation.
1: Head to feveredreams.thedailybeast.com to sign up.
0: Okay, this week on Fever Dreams, we have Matthew Remski. He's a co-host of the Conspirituality Podcast. Matthew, welcome aboard. Thank you so much for the invite, Will. Great to be here. Great. Well, first of all, I think people might be wondering, what do you mean by conspirituality, and what does that encompass?
2: Well, the term comes from a really fantastic academic paper in 2011 published by a sociologist of religion named David Voas and an independent researcher named Charlotte Ward. Ward's kind of an interesting character, I might might say a little bit more about her in a bit, but they coined the term as a kind of portmanteau of the union that they were seeing between what they described as a male-dominated fascination with political cynicism and conspiracism with a female-dominated fascination with New Age aspirations and the coming enlightened way of life. And what they describe in their paper is... This kind of paradoxical movement that acknowledges, sometimes with a lot of both sincerity but also accuracy, that there are many things that are going wrong in the world structurally. There are many things that human beings in general should be worried about, but that all of those things are kind of coalesced in their unfolding under the plan of an evil cabal, which will be familiar to listeners of this podcast. Here's the kicker but that it's this is actually it's a positive era to be alive in because to become aware of the machinations of the cabal is to awaken to your deeper knowledge and to begin to participate in a global sort of epiphany that will bring upon a new spiritual age. Some of that kind of pattern will be familiar to people who are familiar with QAnon, but there's a much more sort of rosy and aspirational hue on the entire project that really connects the realization of the depravity of the world to the opportunity to become enlightened.
0: So what are some of the touchstones of this kind of thinking? I mean, it seems like there's kind of like a New Age element to it, Some, perhaps some yoga, perhaps some alternative medicine, or kind of like a lot of nutrition stuff. I mean, what are kind of the, some of the groups or some of the movements you would say fall under this spirituality umbrella?
2: Yeah, I mean, you're pointing towards demographics in the yoga and wellness worlds that have been active and vibrant and productive and creative over the last hundred years, and they're all in there together. What connects them is the capacity to take the three main principles of New Age thought, which would be everything happens for a purpose, nothing is as it seems, and everything is connected as being sort of foundational ways for guiding your life. If you understand these three principles in most of these fields and apply them to your diet or to your physical culture or your exercise or even to your mental health, you will begin to awaken into a more sort of enlightened state. It just so happens, though, that those same three principles are pinged by the political scientist Michael Barkun as being the foundations of conspiratorial thinking, that whatever you're seeing in the world, it's Actually, an illusion. There are no random events and that things are happening towards some sort of concrete purpose. There's intentionality behind what you're seeing. And so everybody who studies yoga or engages in mindfulness meditation or picks up a kind of globalized, otherwise indigenous healing practice like Chinese medicine or Ayurveda, they're all going to be Osmotically kind of connected with these principles. On some level, they're going to be trained or they're going to train themselves to think in terms of connectivity and seeing through the veil of illusion and also understanding what the overall purpose of life is. Beyond the sort of like material specifics of how does a virus evolve or are you really infected or is a PCR test really going to tell you something about your life, there's kind of like a wholesale rejection of conventional knowledge in these worlds. And that's kind of foundational to the way in which the influencers of conspirituality come to know things and then also spread their ideas about things.
0: You know, that's so interesting. I mean, there's this concept of, I think, the flip of conventional knowledge is sort of in the world of people who study conspiracy theories. is called, like, stigmatized knowledge. And so this idea of whether it is, I'm going to put this, like, kind of special spice in my tea that I think is going to speed up my metabolism, or whether it gets into kind of darker ways of I'm going to refuse vaccine, stuff like that, this all kind of like blends together in this new age, this new age sort of blend, then the implication is that for some people, it makes it easier to get into something like QAnon is the most obvious example. So Matthew, you have some personal experience with this realm of conspirituality. Can you talk about that and sort of how you got interested in this?
2: I can, but I got to like address stigmatized knowledge for a moment because you're absolutely right. And you're referring to Barkun as well. And like the notion that there is something secret that the seeker is in touch with or finding or they are connecting with through an influencer over is like absolutely essential. And it goes right back to things like. Rudolf Steiner, the founder of Waldorf Education and Anthroposophy, saying things in the early 20th century like, the conventional study of history won't really tell you the truth about what happened. And and so what I do is well, I'm fully integrated as a spiritual being, and that means that I can read the Akashic records. And so I can understand that actually Europeans are more evolved than Asians and certainly Africans and all of his racist bullshit. But his way of knowing things is to literally say historians who evaluate evidence and then have to change their opinions about things or their readings of things based upon new evidence, that's not valid. That's not really, that's messy. And so I'm really going to say that I'm in touch with some sort of ultimate reality and the capacity to read what he called the Akashic Records. So it's a very sort of like privatized knowledge that becomes the gold standard of how to do things or how to think about yourself in these worlds. And my own personal involvement in the spirituality sphere really predates all of the material that I study now. But it had some of those elements in it because I was involved, I was recruited into a kind of neo-Buddhist cult run by a guy named Michael Roach, who actually, in the first year of the pandemic, sometime in the summer, I think, of 2020, came out with a workshop series claiming to teach a form of meditation that was going to eradicate the virus. And so, I mean, those connections will always be there because we're talking about very old and sort of recycled ways of thinking. But yeah, I had my six years of enmeshment in two different cultic organizations because a number of reasons. I was socially quite lost at the time. I was in the middle of deciding whether or not I was going to go back to school. I had moved countries. It was a very disorganized period in my life, and I got drawn into environments in which these ideas seem to offer something very concrete and something very centering and also seem to tell me that actually you're at the center of making your own reality and you can decide how to be healthy and you can validate your own knowledge. Maybe you don't need to finish college and go to graduate school like the rest of your family did. So yeah, I did have a personal experience of the kind of foundational cultures that have led to the explosion of conspirituality that we chart from about 2020, then that starts going back 15, maybe 17 years or something like that.
1: Matthew, do you feel like how you were in that particular vulnerable time Do you think that you're kind of the archetype for the people that they're looking for to recruit? Is there a through line between the type of people who would be vulnerable to these kinds of draws?
2: It's a really great question. I mean, I think as a cult researcher and somebody who I, I know a lot about the recovery literature, there really aren't clear predictors for who gets enmeshed into high demand groups or cults. I can say that what seems consistent in the literature is that people talk about situational vulnerabilities, right? You've gotten divorced, a parent has died, you've had a cancer diagnosis, you've lost a job or something like that, and maybe you've lost a community through, I don't know, being rejected or having moved or something like that. And and you suddenly find yourself in a situation in which you need everything to change and a high demand group will meet you there if it can, and it will say we have a complete and total answer for you. Now, they don't want everybody, however, because the person who's truly destitute, the person who really doesn't have any of their own funding, becomes a kind of social and financial burden to the high demand group. So it's not like everybody who is down on their luck or socially disconnected is automatically targeted. There's a real synergy between what the group needs and what the prospective member is lacking. And so am I the archetype? I think, I mean, what I want to say is that the difference between me getting involved in brick and mortar cults in 1996 and 1999 is very different from the kind of online cultic environment that we see emerging around conspirituality and QAnon in which, did you really have to like go to an event? Did you have to go to a talk? Did you have to sign up for a course or did you just find yourself in a weird Facebook group? Like the threshold for entry is so much more subtle. It's like Gossamer really. And so I think the notion of situational vulnerability the standard lowers in the online world, right? Like you don't actually have to be that vulnerable in order to be inundated by the algorithms of Instagram and Facebook and TikTok with conspiratorial materials and the influencers who gather huge followings around them. So I don't think, yeah, I think that the stakes have, it has gotten easier For cultic environments to grow online. I think the caveat there is that it's also hard for influencers who want cultic followings to retain people because the investment is relatively low. You can always go to somebody else's channel if you're not quite vibing. So that's a number of answers at once, but I hope that says something.
0: That's so interesting, Matthew. So talk to me about this idea of now that of these spirituality influencers competing for recruits and then trying to retain them. I mean, I imagine there's a lot of sort of shifting with events.
2: Yeah, definitely. And I think that what we saw through the, let's say, the early stage of COVID was that the primary conspirituality marketers like Christiane Northrup or Kelly Brogan and Sayer G when they were still a power couple, they're now divorced, or Zach Bush or Bernard Gunther, or there's a list as long as our arm. What we saw was that there was a continual kind of respectability politics that kind of framed their, or by which they tested the waters of their followers to see what would be acceptable. So when lockdown happens, all of the yoga studios close. All of the massage spa environments have to shutter. Everybody has to do their meditation retreats online. Nobody's going to Costa Rica. (laughs) Suddenly, in the spring and summer of 2020, there's a very, very, Crowded online space. And so to shine forward as a conspirituality influencer, you're always going to have to tease the edges of acceptability with regard to your content. And so this is how something like Save the Children evolves and becomes a gateway into a very popular gateway into the pedophilia fascinations of QAnon. This is how the masking issue amongst health-oriented conspiritualists became a gateway kind of iconic subject to talk about when thinking about how children are hidden as they're being trafficked. But what you didn't see was a lot of what Marc-Andre Argentino has termed the pastel QAnon crowd use the specific terms That were so powerful within QAnon discourse, terms like panda eyes or adrenochrome or mole children. And just
0: to be clear here, I mean, the panda eyes is the idea of children who are being abused having these kind of like black eyes, essentially. Yeah, because they're being drained of their vital juices. Even though, even though,
2: amongst conspiritualists who study Ayurveda and Chinese medicine and stuff like that, knowing that children have darkened eye sockets would be an indication of like kidney imbalance or chi imbalance and would naturally lead people to think, oh, they must be having the adrenochrome sucked out of them. But you didn't really see a lot of energy that way. Like Somebody like Sayer G, who runs Green Med Info with an email newsletter that goes out to something like a half a million people almost every day, he once in a while would use a hashtag like Pizzagate is real or take the red pill. But then when I go and interview him as I do a piece on the phenomenon, he kind of like backpedals and he says, I don't really know what it means. And I'm not really endorsing the view because I think what's at stake for conspirituality influencers is making sure that they don't lose their wellness clientele that they built up, perhaps amongst demographics that consider themselves to be progressive or even leftist over decades. So when we look at somebody like Christiane Northrup, this is an icon of feminist OBGYN health over the last 20 or 30 years, somebody who has pushed back against the excesses of conventional gynecology, somebody who has always talked about gynecology as being a field in which women can be empowered, somebody who has campaigned against the circumcision of young male-born children. This is somebody who is celebrated across the political spectrum, but very often by people who are progressive or even think of themselves as being leftist. And so when she gets red-pilled somewhere around April of 2020 and she obviously can't stop thinking or posting or scrolling through QAnon materials. It's a real crisis for her followers, and she has to be very careful about how much she actually says. When she actually gets called out by our podcast and by some other reporting that she's quoting QAnon influencers, what happens is she cleans up her mainstream social media feeds. And then she puts all of the QAnon related content onto Telegram, and then maintains this kind of hygienic split between her wellness demographic and her conspiracy theory demographic.
0: So interesting, you mentioned Christiane Northrup. I mean, this is not someone we have really talked about here on the podcast before. But this is someone who, as you mentioned, was like a relatively mainstream new age sort of feminist figure. In my book, I talked to a guy, young man whose mom got very into QAnon precisely through that pathway of saying sort of seeing Christiane Northrup as sort of this Maybe an idol is not the right word, but sort of a hero of hers, and then she starts saying, "By the way, like check out this QAnon influencer and stuff like that." Well, she's
2: responsible for the virality of Plandemic because on May fifth, it was her post to Facebook to five hundred thousand followers that brought that brought Plandemic out of Q, weird QAnon Facebook groups and into the mainstream. So there is a New York Times article that charts the virality of that. What do we call it? mentor or something? And it takes off right. On the day that she posts it to half a million followers. And that's often the function that conspirituality performs. It maintains a kind of like bourgeois glow to a presentation of health and wellness while also sort of, in the other hand, offering this terrifying vision of the world. Now, Northrop has tracked farther and farther to the right and has become more and more explicit in her extremist views to the point where now she openly talks about how she fantasizes about murdering doctors who vaccinate children.
1: I think what's fascinating about this is that that kind of a conspiracy theory, pandemic, specifically, that it launched not from like a partisan political angle, but from the spirituality angle, that's something I learned right now. Yeah.
2: And I think that what is so, I don't know, like frustrating and compelling about conspirituality is that it frustrates many, many political expectations that go right back to the 1960s about the nature of who involves themselves in organic or free-range or healthist cultures. So it's a very strange kind of revelation for people to wake up in their yoga Facebook groups in the spring of 2020 and realize that people that they have known either in person or online for years are suddenly completely unaware that they are sharing material that dog whistles anti-Semitism or that they're sharing materials that kind of recapitulate the satanic panic as though we didn't learn anything from that. It's a very strange thing, and it has to do with the fact, I think, that the wellness industry through the 60s and 70s emerges in tandem or because of, or maybe I'll even say that it embodies a kind of value placed on depoliticization. There's a big part of the wellness industry that, and this is true of yoga as well, that I think comes out of this late 60s, early 70s environment in which some pretty exhausted hippies are saying, we did our best and nothing seems to be changing. We're going to go back to the land. We're going to get a farm in Vermont. We're going to turn our focus inwards. And we're going to try to change the world by changing ourselves. And what that comes down to... 20 years down the line is a yoga culture that is completely depoliticized to the point where, whenever it was, that, when was Obama's first run? 2008, I believe. To the point where, when I try to organize some kind of online activism based in the yoga world to support Obama's candidacy in 2008 or 2007. I met with like vitriol. Do not bring politics into my practice of yoga. This is what I come here to get away from. Our yoga community is about nurturing each other in the awareness of oneness or whatever. And so, like, that really sort of shocked me at the time because I realized that a feature, not a bug of this culture, is the belief that if you behave or think in a political way, you are enhancing division, you are contradicting your own inner values or something like that, that politics is somehow beneath what your life should be. And I think this spirit of depoliticization leads a whole bunch of people over decades to the position in which when 2020 rolls around, they just have no idea what's happening when a very political... QAnon movement moves into their spaces and tells them a really sort of compelling story that they just can't grok in terms of its political implications.
0: Wow. I mean, there's really so much to cover in this whole sphere, and I'm glad we have you at the Conspirituality Podcast doing it. Again, that's Matthew Remsky. He's the co-host of the Conspirituality Podcast. He's on Twitter at Matthew Remski, R-E-M-S-K-I. Matthew, thank you so much for joining us. It's a
2: pleasure, Will. Thanks so much. Thanks, Anthony.
0: Thank you. Okay, it's time for Fresh Hell. Will, what is the Fresh Hell this week? Okay, this week on Fresh Hell, people think Justin Trudeau is the leader of Canada. But for a small but very vocal segment of the Canadian population, that's just not true. Instead, they swear allegiance to a woman named Romana Dudulu, the self-proclaimed QAnon Queen of Canada. A lady who is sort of riding a very offshoot, kind of fracturous wave of... QAnon into becoming the Queen of Canada. And people might say, well, who cares about the Queen of Canada? I live in America. Well, bad news, because now she's trying to extend her reign down to America. In an article for the Daily Beast this week, I explore Dudulu's attempts to establish the kingdom of America. Now, this is a lady I've kind of avoided talking about, because it's a whole kettle of fish. But this week, I thought we'd dive right into that kettle of fish. So this is a woman who is sort of a, I don't know, she's kind of an average person. She doesn't really have much claim to royalty. But back, I think last year, she started posting on Telegram, which is obviously kind of the go-to QAnon social media app these days, and saying that Q and the gang and the white hats in the American military had declared that she was the new queen of Canada. And she has a flag and all this kind of stuff. And her initial sort of rise to fame was that she said, I'm the queen. Decree number one, no vaccine mandates and no mask mandates. And so this really resonated with a certain amount of Canada that was really kind of fed up with these things. And people started waving her flags around. I mean, you look at some of these protests, these right-wing protests in Canada, and you might see her her purple flag. And so she has sort of built up—it's hard to get a read on how many people believe she's the Queen of Canada, but it's a somewhat— active bunch because she issues these decrees and encourages her followers to, for example, institute the death penalty for anyone involved in giving vaccines to children. And so there was a case where a lot of people were sharing all the guns they had that they were going to go sort of institute the death penalty decrees on, let's say, doctors who were vaccinating children. One guy, one of her followers, was arrested after he he allegedly planned to shoot up his kid's school and was fortunately stopped over because he believed Dodulo had authorized him to do this. So there's also a soft. Sovereign citizen aspect to this, where they have sort of these fake laws and like a, a cop tried to arrest one of her followers on outstanding warrants. And he said, no, no, I'm a subject of the queen. Justin Trudeau's law has no power over me and he was quickly arrested. Well,
1: you know, I think it's worth noting that Canada is still part of the Commonwealth of England and Queen is on their money.
0: And Queen Elizabeth, not the other Queen, Queen Didula. Correct,
1: yeah. So there might be a bit of like anti-monarchist feeling here, like adding to the nationalism aspect of it. But rebellion is in the Canadian spirit. I mean, we're only a couple of decades removed from when Quebecois separatism was a real serious thing. And I was actually in a Montreal bar in the last decade that I was told, a few hours after I was there that this is a separatist bar. And it kind of showed me just like how ingrained rebellion can be into a certain part of the Canadian spirit, a lot like it is in the American spirit. But the QAnonization of anti-government spirit is really attractive right now. So Queen
0: Dedulo, long live the Queen. (laughs) Well, she also has ties to the folks remember the famous Canadian trucker protests, kind of what she rode to fame. More recently, she has a fleet of RVs that she's using to crisscross Canada and meet with her followers. And I will say at each of these gatherings, there's like a couple dozen. People, which maybe not that many, but you see it, and it's like, wow, this is pretty wacky that someone has been able to fund this woman's in between her decrees, declaring, for example, the death penalty for distributing pro-vaccine podcasts. She'll say, by the way, the lease on RV number two is coming up. So if anyone wants to hit me up with three grand on PayPal or what have you. So now she's expanding to America. She has this guy, she's declared the commander-in-chief of America and sort of her various followers. If you say, I declare, in my case, I declare Washington, D.C., for Queen Dadugaloo. And then she declares you, I would be His Excellency Will, which I think has an appeal for some people. The other thing I want to underline here is on this podcast, we try to talk about, particularly with QAnon and kind of its related branches, I think something that gets underplayed is the direct financial promise it offers people. So in her case, she has these decrees. She has a lot of wacky decrees, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And so she has one decree in a very, I think, kind of Canadian way that says we have to reduce the speed limit in back alleys so that more people can play street hockey in the alleys, right? And so everyone goes, yay. But the more relevant ones, I think, she says, I'm abolishing the income tax and I'm abolishing mortgages and rent. And you can pay your utility bills with IOUs, backed by the Queen of Canada. And so people try to do this and they end up getting their utility bills shut off because, and I know this because then they end up in the Telegram group saying, uh, hey, Queen Dudulu, Canadian power company, cut off my power. They said they don't recognize your sovereignty. So how does this extend to the United States now? Well, her followers have started sending kind of much the same way that they've done in Canada. They've started contacting legitimate American government officials. One of them sent a letter to the attorney general of Florida and said, hey, quick heads up, Queen Dudulu runs the show now. So I would encourage you to contact Ron DeSantis and start bringing our state in line. Otherwise, we'll be facing some pretty stiff penalties, whether that be capital punishment or decades in jail. So, Anthony, this might have been a fun segment, but I got a little bad news for you. Well, one of the Queen's decrees is that people, journalists who criticize her and suggest that she's not the Queen of Canada, and now America, will face 30 years in prison. This is a freedom and li- limited government thing. Yes, exactly. The bad boys, bad boys. This can play like the jail cell clinking shut behind us as soon as DiDulo manages to implement her reign. And the final thing I would say here is, while yes, it is funny, people might say, well, who cares? This is some random lady online. But I think, as we've underlined, I mean, this woman, like q in general sort of gives, I think, people who are already unhinged and sort of looking for something to do with their lives, gives them a focus. And so in this case, it's number one, stop paying your bills, start kind of scrapping with your local police. And then in this one alleged case, maybe shoot up a school. And so I think we're just looking at another example here of how these crazy ideas managed to worm their ways into our real lives. I mean, and just
1: one more thing to wrap it up. What is the state of the Canadian trucker movement at this point? Did it just completely
0: fizzle out? Yeah, that's my sense of it. I mean, somehow the American truckers who were way worse at the initial pro- they're now posted up on the National Mall and are sort of constantly getting arrested for outstanding warrants, but are managing to hang in there. Whereas the Canadian truckers are really have really dissipated.
1: Well, that was revolution just a few months ago.
0: On that note, let's wrap up this episode of Fever Dreams from The Daily Beast. In future installments, we'll also be speaking to some amazing guests at The Daily Beast and Beyond, from politics to popular culture. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your preferred podcast app and share the show on social media and at your family dinner table. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Will Summer and Kelly is at Kelly Weil. That's W-E-I-L-L. Come say hi. This podcast is produced by Jesse Cannon with music by Brian Demeglio. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time.